Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. I am very excited for today's episode. I think listeners and founders especially are going to find some of the insight and pieces of advice here extremely helpful and very importantly, free of charge. Trey Calver is a startup and venture attorney at Michael Best, a full-service law firm based here in Chicago. He started his career by splitting time at a VC fund and a law firm that specialized in startups. He created an approved business and legal contracts for Motivate Venture Capital while also working as an attorney for a boutique startup legal company that focused on the tech industry. Before that, he worked as an associate at NCT Ventures, an early-stage VC firm while getting his JD from The Ohio State University. Trey also has an entrepreneurial background. He co-founded and bootstrapped an online startup and communication platform for high school athletic teams. This was an especially fun episode to record, and I cannot wait to have Trey back on to pick his brain on many more legal topics surrounding early-stage venture. With all that said, here's my episode with Trey. Trey, thank you so much for joining me on Chicago Capital. It is great to have our first lawyer in the house. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You also look like a guy who is back in the office. So got to ask, how does it feel? Yes, sir. I've actually been back since I started here at Michael Best for about two months. And not going to lie, it feels pretty good. Good to get out of the old living room and actually get a change of scenery. So it's it's definitely nice. I think you're the first guest interviewed that has a backdrop that is not their <laughs> living room or their bedroom. So this is not gonna lie, it's nice to see a little Chicago skyline in the background. Yeah, man, it's some sense of normalcy. Not quite there yet, but we're getting close for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned you just recently started at Michael Best. So I think we'd all love to hear, you know, your background and how you sort of got to where you are in your career. And I'm sure there's tons we can unpack. But, you know, as our first lawyer, I think everyone's going to be really excited to hear uh, hear about your background. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely a bit of a winding road. If you would have asked me probably six or seven years ago, if I was going to be a lawyer, I'd probably tell you you're crazy. Definitely was not the long-term plan. Just kind of worked out. Uh, I've always been a venture nerd and a startup nerd. Um, went to a small school in Northeast Indiana where I actually went to play basketball, a small school called Trine. And played for my first year, ended up quitting my, my second year. Uh, and I really focused on venture, entered a few pitch competitions with a few ideas. And it actually uh, launched a, a small tech company that came from a class with two classmates. And we, uh, you know, for the final exam, we just pitched to Elevate Ventures. I think it's like technically a private nonprofit venture organization in Indiana. And we got a $25,000 startup grant. Uh, we got a, a few angels from the university that, that put some money into it. And so I really got my, my, my start in venture where I candidly didn't even know what, what venture capital was up until that point, but you know, other than Shark Tank. But uh, I really learned about venture and the process and working with Elevate was awesome and the angels. Um, and, and that really got me into venture. And I think what ultimately led me the wall route was, I mean, candidly, one, I didn't think I could get into venture. You know, I went to a small school that no one's ever heard of. I didn't have a personal network. My entire family is in sports with my brother, my sister, my dad, all work in athletics. And I, I just, I'd interviewed a few places, you know, one interview specifically that always sticks out. I was talking to, it's more like an intro call. And the guy tells me on the phone, like, look, you know, you're great. You have a, a great background, you know, obviously really interested, but we just don't recruit from your school. We usually recruit from these schools. And so it probably, you know, just to, to be a best use of your time for you to just kind of move on to, to the next opportunity. And that definitely stunk. You know, I, it wasn't, you know, the most fun, fun call to go through. But after that, I, that's kind of what led me to law to kind of circle back. I still love venture. I still love entrepreneurship. And I really admired the attorney that I worked with and that small kind of student led business that I helped start. And so I thought, you know, what better way to stay in, engaged and be evaluated in the community than to be a lawyer. So it's kind of my my random path to uh, be, becoming interested in venture law. In college, for you, did you start first with these ventures that you were trying to start yourselves and these small kind of businesses? And that's what introduced you to the world of how to fund those businesses? And then, whoa, what's venture capital? 
or or for you was the genesis you know you started reading about potential career paths after you quit basketball and you learned about venture capital and the startups thing sort of happened concurrently just curious about for you like what was the true spark for your kind of passion in venture capital yeah so really it was just entrepreneurship generally i wouldn't even say venture to start because i you know my my grandfather has his own construction business so here in that you know, my dad had more so uh, side hustles, but ran a basketball kind of tournament basketball league that I would help with. Two of my best friends, dads both had their own, they ran their small businesses. So I was always really interested in entrepreneurship generally and running my own business. And it was when I was undergrad, we had uh, one of like a, a pitch competition. And I actually entered it with my roommate. That was really cool. Try to figure out, you know, we actually wrote a real business plan. Like it wasn't just a deck. It was like actually a Word document that was like 30 pages long. Like I, don't, I have no idea why I put in the time and energy on that, but we just didn't know. And it was through that competition where we got third place and got a little bit of money and started looking into opportunities to fund the actual business. And that's kind of where I learned what venture capital was and that there were people that would actually, you know, give crazy entrepreneurs like myself some money to, to go chase some of these dreams. For you coming out of, you know, a smaller school, I think there's a lot of people today interested in getting into venture capital and you know, not everybody went to the Ivy Leagues or to the target schools. And you're somebody who's sort of successfully navigated that path thus far. Curious if you just have any advice for college kids who may be listening or young professionals who maybe don't have the sterling background to date but they still want to get into venture capital and they still want to work close with entrepreneurs. Any advice or any words of wisdom you would say to those who maybe are just discouraged right now about how challenging it can be to even break in? Yeah, and I I wish there was some secret sauce or some secret formula I could give you. But I mean, really it's just doing it, you know, going and talking to entrepreneurs, talking to VCs. I mean, there are a ton of fellowships now on different opportunities to get um, engaged with VCs and the I think the Venture University course and just, you know, I think if you reach out to VCs, especially analysts and associates, just want to connect with people in the community. Um, so it's fairly easy to get engaged with the community. I don't know. It's not necessarily easy to actually get a role, you know, as a VC, but I mean, really all I did, I, I just tried, right? Like I just tried to put myself in situations around people. I probably looked so stupid half the time where when I moved to Columbus before law school, I had a gap year before law school. And I literally just called people like I was driving around downtown Columbus. I saw a sign that said, innovate, I don't even remember the name of the company, something innovation. I looked it up and it looked like they might be in the startup space. So I literally called the number on their website, left a, a message like on the voicemail saying, hey, my name's Trey. I'm really interested in innovation. I would love to connect, see if we could work together. And they, people listening to this voicemail were probably just laughing at me. Like, right, like I would just reach out to anyone and anyone that would listen. I think that's part of it. You know, you if you don't have the network, you don't necessarily have the background, just figure it out on the fly and you go around and reach out to people and eventually you'll get lucky. Mine, I got lucky reaching out to a general counsel at NCT Ventures, uh, Lindsay. She's probably my closest mentor today and she just got coffee with me and didn't necessarily deserve it for any reason. She gave me some time and and so that, that kind of got me off. So I'd say, you know, if you want to get into venture, you know, you don't necessarily have the typical background just reaching out to people, going to events, just putting yourself out there. Eventually, I think you'll you'll get some traction. Yeah, I think that's such good advice too. And that's something I wish, honestly, I had done earlier in my career and earlier in college even is, is you were lucky in some respects that you figured out that there was this spark. There was something you were super interested in. I think a lot of kids just fall into whatever their university sort of most prolific path is. So for where I went to college, it was investment banking or go just work at a big, big, big financial services company. So I think people can fall into those paths and you don't spend enough time probably in college figuring out like, who are the type of professionals that I look up to? Who who do I want to be in 10 years? Which I think is something that you were able to successfully figure out. So even despite some of the setbacks, I think that you faced, and we can talk about a few of those, I think is kind of your path. And it led you to a dual role at uh, Motivate and Gillespie. But I'm just curious about, you know, some of maybe those setbacks that you faced along the way. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start with you know, the first company called Job Scholar. I don't think I've actually said the name of it. In years, I was, you ask anyone on campus back when I was an undergrad, they would probably tell you how annoyed they were with me and just 
altogether tired of me talking about Job Scholar and startups in general. But we, we launched this my junior year. I had two classmates and partners who were seniors. And we got some funding then going into my senior year. And so really just like an odd job platform for college students, helping break the broke college kid stereotype. People in the community would post jobs, college students would work them. And getting funding was pretty awesome. I mean, and again, why I became a lawyer, you see the money hit your bank account. And I remember coordinating with the attorney on the other side. And I saw the money in our phone, like, holy cow, like, that's an amazing feeling. But then also, you know, we're basically sending college students out to random homeowners. So probably out in the woods somewhere, it's small town, rural Indiana, these kids are going who knows where. And so kind of nervous and kind of afraid of what could go wrong. And so the attorneys were there to help us through that as well. And so like through this whole process, it was, you know, it seemed like it was, it was really exciting. It was really fun, but ended up not really going anywhere. Like I said, we tried to keep it a student led business and keep it within the university, but my partners you know, living their lives went off and moved on to their career and their profession and, and getting full-time jobs. And so I'd say the first setback was not really taking that and launching it like I really wanted to. Seeing that money, like I said, hit your account is so exciting and you have such big plans. And me and my senior year that, you know, we're probably not going to, you know, we're not going to build a unicorn out of this. It's just going to be a local student-led thing, which was still fine. But, but definitely that's, you know, when I started trying to get into venture and looking at my next opportunity, um, it was a little disheartening for sure. And definitely seemed like the biggest failure of my life at the time. Oh, I was going to build a billion dollar company and now it's just a small little student. So that I'd say what got me through that too, is just like understanding big picture, like one, how amazing that experience is that, that opened the door for me to give me, it gave me some insight into venture, helped me build somewhat of a network and also just understanding that you're going to do things and they're not going to go the way you want them to. So I'd say that was, that was the first kind of, seemed like a huge setback, kind of minor setback at the, when I look back now. But, you know, I really, like I said, I went to law school after and getting into Ohio State was awesome. I only applied to a couple of schools. Anyone that knows me knows I'm a huge Buckeye. Again, annoying people with my fandom there. But it seemed like things picked up, right? Like I, I just kept pushing through. I decided to go try to be a startup lawyer. I applied to OSU, got in, got a small scholarship. I moved to Columbus. A lot of friends were in Columbus and things really started to pick up. And so just moving from that seemingly huge failure at the time was just knowing what I wanted. And that's to be working with startups in general, being in the entrepreneurial community. And I was able to, to find a good path to, to stay on that route. And so you know, going to OSU, I ended up connecting, like I said, with Lindsay, who is at NCT Ventures. And, you know, I guess I feel like my whole path is this big roller coaster. So as I raise some money and I'm so excited and it doesn't really work out and I'm sad. And now I'm going to Ohio State and I connect with this awesome lawyer and VC at NCT. And she gives me an opportunity to join NCT for the summer. And turns out they needed some more help after the summer. So they kept me on as an associate. So now like I was feeling good. I would I worked at NCT about two years during law school. I was traveling all over the country, meeting with entrepreneurs. Uh, they'd offered me a full-time position after law school. Like I, you know, it was set. I was ready to go, kind of living the dream. And we were raising this big new fund three. I you know, always remember $150 million fund three at NCT. And I actually took summer courses so I could graduate early to work on the fund. So like, you know, I don't want them to hire someone else if the fund closes. So I got to hurry up and get done with law school. And candidly, at this point, I was probably not going to take the bar exam, probably wasn't going to be a lawyer. And I was just going to run with NCT. And I'll never forget my uh, finals week of my summer semester. I was talking to the, the managing partner and says, you know, so long story short, it tells me we're not going to raise the fund. So you're, you're going to need to find something else to do after law school. And mind you, this is three days before I have four back-to-back-to-back final exams that I'm not really prepared for. And now my future seemingly falls apart. And I was like, holy cow, what am I going to do now? Um, and it was, it was a tough time. I mean, it kind of always talking venture at the law school. I mean, it was my identity at the time. And I had seemingly my dream set, set up. It was ready to go. I had this opportunity and just fell apart. And so again, just now going down on the roller coaster and going through a tough time, it was just knowing, again, what I wanted big picture, just because it wasn't going to work with NCT doesn't mean I can't find another firm, doesn't mean I can't, you know, still take the bar exam. Thankfully, I had options with law school. And so again, just recalibrating and and thinking through what my next step was, what my long-term goal was, was, um, you know, the the best way to kind of get through that setback. 
And again, just talking to mentors, talking to Lindsay, talking to um, entrepreneurs that I really respected, talking to people that I'd gone to school with. It was all really helpful. And I think I'd so I'm, I'm pretty, I don't give up very easily. <laughs> I guess that would be my one piece of advice for getting into venture or getting through setbacks in general is just, if you don't give up, if you keep pushing forward, it's hard to fail, to be honest. If you constantly, you, you pivot, you keep pushing forward, you can, you eventually you'll probably find something that works out in some way, shape or form. And so I just started interviewing with a ton of VCs, a few law firms, and uh, that got me to, to GLG and to motivate, which, you know, kind of pick me back up and got me through that downtime. Yeah, I think it's on the topic of resiliency. It feels like great entrepreneurs and anyone looking into venture, looking to get into venture capital needs a healthy dose of resiliency. <laughs> but it is a great story too, because, you know, as you said, it has a happy ending and ultimately spent time at Motivate and you did end up at a great firm, Michael Best. And I think we'd love to hear about the origin of that firm, Venture Best, which is the you know group that you're working in right now would be great to hear about the background of the firm you're at today. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, so Michael Best, we have, what I want to say 12 offices across the country. And one thing I really liked about Michael Best was, especially from the venture practice group standpoint, is that uh, it had resembled my investment thesis at Motivate and NCT of targeting opportunities between the coasts. So we have offices in Chicago, Milwaukee, Austin, Salt Lake, Denver, Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, I think it just resembled my general thesis. You know, it's a great place to build a venture fund between the coasts, great place to build a company and great place to be a service provider that, that are, you know, you're working with these companies and probably first time start, um, founders, first time uh, fund managers that could also probably use some guidance on people that have been in the ecosystem for a while. So I really enjoyed, uh, you know, their approach, the venture group, the venture best practice. We you know, I kind of see it as a startup uh, you know, in and of itself where, you know, it's a pretty nimble team. We're a smaller group within the broader firm. And, you know, we're just, we're, we're focused on growth where we really want to build our brand as a great venture firm and a great, or not, not venture capital firm, but venture law firm, and really be able to advise entrepreneurs, you know, in every step of their business from the initial formation up to exit or IPO. So that's you know, a, a bit of a, a bit of a background and we're a full service law firm too. So we get to work with some great IP, privacy, employment folks, uh, securities across the board. So if I'm a founder, if I'm an early stage entrepreneur, when should I reach out to a Michael Best? You know, like when do I actually need to start seeking legal counsel? I think that's a question that some entrepreneurs don't even know when to ask. So I think that's, that'd be really interesting to hear in your opinion, I mean, I know you guys want to get hired probably as early as possible. <laughs> this might be a biased answer, but I'm curious when you think founders should consider reaching out to a, a legal expert. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, I've definitely been there right, with my venture. And one thing I hadn't really mentioned is a bootstrap um, company I started in my gap year, where in both cases, you're really lean, you're operating lean, you're early on. Maybe you, know, you are a first time founder, you don't really know what to do. You think if you talk to a lawyer, you're going to immediately have a $10,000 legal bill that you can't afford, which definitely isn't the case. But I would say, I would talk to a lawyer, most lawyers like myself, if you're looking to start a business, I would be more than happy to have like a 15, 20 minute chat. I would say most lawyers are the same, most venture lawyers, because we kind of have the entrepreneurial drive. You know, we, we just enjoy talking to entrepreneurs and working with entrepreneurs. And so I would say just you know, reaching out to a lawyer when you get started. Um, if you feel the need to clarify that it's a non-billable call, then for sure mention that. But just kind of touching base with someone building a relationship helps. But I would say, you know, before you even get started. So a lot of things that I commonly see founders do when they start, they try to use an online service like Clerky, which can be really good and really helpful and help get you set up. But one common mistake is filing your certificate of incorporation or drafting your operating agreement and messing it. I had a friend... They use Clerky that tried to add an entity as a director of their Delaware C Corp, which it needs to be an individual. And so there are just common mistakes like that to where it just creates a lot more work in the long run. It causes, you know, it costs you more too, because now you have to get a lawyer to undo everything that was wrong and then actually do it right. And so just touching base with someone early on um, is helpful. I commonly see people also reach out to their family member or friend who's a lawyer, but might be a tax lawyer or 
a family and a, you know, a state lawyer that doesn't really know venture or corporate law. And so they'll try to file documents for them. And again, we'll see mistakes. So just touching base with the lawyer to get a lay of the land. And you know, we, I'm not looking to spend 30 minutes filing a document for someone and sending you a legal bill of a couple hundred. Like that's not my goal. I want to help you you know, raise capital and grow your business in the long term. So I'm not sitting here like, oh, who can I charge a thousand dollars? See, like that's not at all. I don't want to do that in any way, shape, or form. So uh, just touching base, lawyer, they'll definitely get you on the right track. I also highly recommend reaching out to law schools. Most of them have an entrepreneurship clinic. And so you can get um, some law students to help, which again, there there's could still be some mistakes, but they almost all, I think they should all have great faculty like at Ohio State. We had a great attorney from Gunderson, five years in big law, could probably be a partner at Gunderson right now if she wanted. And and said she came and ran the clinic. And so you're getting some top-notch legal talent there for free through the clinic. And we help, we would help get you set up uh, with some of the basics. So to answer your question, getting started, touch base with the lawyer, just try to get a lay of the land, reach out to either an entrepreneurship clinic at a law school or maybe a local clinic if you have one, just like a free legal clinic. And that's usually a good place to get started. When somebody does get started, when somebody does come into your office and they have a pre-seed startup, what are some of the biggest questions or conundrums they're facing? You know, what do you get asked the most at that very early stage where maybe they haven't even raised any institutional capital and there's no term sheets involved and they're just trying to figure out how do I get this? How do I create this business from nothing legally? What are some of the biggest questions that you hear often? Sure. Well, the first is the type of entity to form, right? Whether it's a usually limited liability company or a corporation, that's a big one. People always ask about a privacy policy in terms of use. It's like an app or a website, which I think it's because what we deal with every day, right? You're constantly clicking through terms and conditions or looking through a privacy policy. And so probably because that's what people see themselves, people are always asking, you know, they'll ask about that before they talk about their equity grants, which could have some really serious implications early on. And so it's, I would say probably the NC formation is the biggest, bring on their friend as a contractor, you know, how should I split this equity? They're not really helping. I put money into this myself and I've been working 30 hours a week and they, they're going to do five hours a week. I can't pay them. How much equity do I give? That's a very common one. I'd say those are the most common. They, they definitely range depending on the type of business too, right? Is it B2B? Is it consumer facing? NC formation, equity splits, kind of bring on that first contractor employee. And then terms of use and privacy policy are all big ones. Yeah. And I think that question around how much equity to give, there's probably so much emotion tied up in that. Finding a lawyer, seeking out a legal expert probably alleviates a lot of the stress for a variety of reasons that you don't have to go through that kind of process alone. I'm so curious about, and I've told you this, I told you this in the past, whenever I talk to a lawyer or a doctor, it could be at a cocktail party, it could be wherever. <laughs> I have so many questions, so I'm going to try and keep this on track, but I don't know what it is about lawyers and doctors. Yeah. I just, I see you guys as like wells of information. Yeah, not to interrupt, but that's really encouraging and great to hear because so many people are not excited to talk to lawyers. I even saw on Twitter, someone grouped lawyers with like tow truck drivers. Like, wow, that's, what are we doing wrong here? We need to, you know, your startup lawyer should be a friend of someone that you enjoy working with. So definitely, you know, enjoy your uh, your positive words here. You, you know, the problem is that not enough people watched Suits, which is Love one suits. of the best. One, I mean, yeah. you have to watch. If you had just said, I've never seen Suits, I would turn this podcast off right now. I'd be yeah, like, I love Suits. I have a Harvey Specter picture in my, uh, in my living room. Granted, I will say, I hope to never go through 99% of the things they go through on that show. It's so overdrawn and dramatic and intense. But love the show. Great show. Yeah, that, that's actually so true. In my head, your guy's job is the most dramatic, standoffish, just amazing kind of conversations happening all the time. But bringing us back to early stage legal questions, I guess, how does that work from an economic standpoint? I'm curious about like early stage uh, venture law firms. You know, you're seeing these companies, a lot of whom might not have raised capital, a lot of capital from the outside. And you did talk about giving a certain level of pro bono, I guess, advice or developing those relationships because you want these to last from inception to IPO. But from an economics, from your standpoint, 
when does sort of the billable time seem to start or when do these relationships really do, when do they need to become contracted relationships between you, the law firm and the startup founder? Sure. So when the work is imminent in the sense that you are ready to go, you either need corporate restructuring or you need to actually file your corporation, get some of the foundational documents in place, or maybe you have your term sheet and you're an LLC, so you need to convert, but you're also ready to raise money now. Now, when there's work to be done, like I said, not just a 30-minute one-off contract that you need drafted, but when there's serious work and, and you're ready to go, that's when we'll, I mean, some people will send the engagement letter early on, just establish that relationship. And so there's also, I'll back up, when you reach out to an attorney, you, you know, when you work with an attorney, there's obviously attorney-client privilege in this relationship. And so it'll also probably be made pretty clearly early on whether I'm your lawyer or you know, whether your lawyer is representing you because you know, then what you might say to your lawyer would be privileged. They can't share it. And so being clear about the relationship is important. So some people will send that engagement letter, you know, bring you on as a client immediately, even if you say, you know, look, we're not going to do any work for you to start. We're not going to bill for a while. I'm um, just having that conversation really just openly and candidly is, is super important in my opinion, just setting expectation. And you know, I have a lot of friends in the venture and startup scene. And so they'll ask me questions and it starts with, so you're not going to bill me, right? Like, are you, like, are you my lawyer? I'll answer your questions at a high level as a friend. I'm not representing you. If you need legal advice, you should consult attorney. And so I also will say that generally for this podcast, I'm sure my law firm will, will want me to say this. Any any uh, legal topics we talk about here, I'm not giving legal advice. This is just you know high level talking with a friend about the law. And you should definitely consult with an attorney if you uh, have any legal questions. So literally so what I just said, it's applicable to this podcast. And um, people will always, when you start, when you have that initial 30-minute conversation, you'll probably get that from a lawyer. Uh, if you ask some questions on Twitter or over the phone, like they'll probably say that they might send you a note, like this isn't legal advice, but X, Y, Z. So jumping ar around here about the kind of the uh, beginnings of your relationship with your lawyer. But I guess I'll say from what, what I try to do at least is I'll talk with someone, maybe they, they want to start a business. They're not quite ready to get going yet. They might have some high level questions and we'll connect and I'll try to give them like a path to go forward on. Don't file your certificate of incorporation and hire employees when you don't know the tax implications or the reporting requirements, things like that. So just high level advice. And then when they're ready to actually form their corporation or restructure their organization or raise capital, then we'll put an engagement letter together. We'll actually solidify the relationship and we'll actually get started on billable work. Again, which we would set out pretty clearly from the start. So that's what the the process looks like with me, at least what I try to do. You probably see different things from different lawyers. And obviously everyone's eager to sign more clients. So people might just send the engagement letter right away. But yeah, in my, my process, I, I try to make it very clear. And you know, I don't want anyone mad at me because they have a surprise bill or something. So I just try to be um, open and, and clear up front. It's great to hear that. I will not be billed for this podcast conversation and uh, <laughs> that weight off my shoulders. I had a question about incorporating. I, I, I've an adage I've heard is that if you're a startup and you are, you think, or you're pretty sure, which most are that you will be needing to raise institutional capital outside capital in the future, you should really always go the C corp route. You should very rarely, rarely become a limited liability corporation. And is that completely off or is that, was there a kernel of truth there? There's definitely truth there. And I think it depends on your general timeline. So you know, say I started a business with a friend when I'm a sophomore in college and we want to raise, we want to build up the community and we want to go raise capital when we graduate in two years or two and a half years. I probably wouldn't start a C or a file a C corp right away, just because an LLC is so flexible. It's there are just so few a few requirements in the sense that you don't have to have a separate board, and there are usually fewer governing documents. I mean, typically when you're a C corp, you have your board consents, your stockholder consents, outlining your stockholders, issuing equity. You know, in your certificate, you have to um, authorize different classes of stock, and so it's a lot easier to just pay $99 or whatever the state filing fee is where you're located. Form your LLC, get a basic operating agreement template that breaks down your percentage. You can literally just put Trey 50%, Matt 50%. And 
you don't have to, you should, <laughs> you, you should issue equity properly, but most of the time people don't. And it's usually not that big of a deal. You just document the operating agreement and it's just really flexible, really easy to get started. But there are a ton of benefits to launching your C-Corp when it's taxes. You know, when you create your, your corporation, you're hope, hopefully you'll be able to take advantage of qualified small business stock. And they're up to $10 million in free tax gains you can have if you hold the stock for a certain period of time. If you are raising that capital, any invest, most investors, at least institutional investors, will require that you convert to a C-Corp because they don't want to deal with a K-1 uh, at the end of the year. So you're going to have to convert anyways. So if you're going to raise capital in six months, you might as well just file your C-Corp right away. And depending on the makeup of the business, if you are going to hire a number of employees and make it more formal of a setting, then a C-Corp might make more sense where it's it's more structured. I generally see an LLC is more flexible. You're just figuring things out and getting started. And a C-Corp is, you know, we're locked, loaded, and ready to go. And we're going to go raise capital and hire people and, and get this started. So that's how I look at it, at least. I'm sure other attorneys would probably disagree with me and tell me I'm completely wrong. I don't know. But generally, I'd say if you're still just figuring it out, playing around, an LLC is super flexible and cheap. But if you're ready to go raise capital, you're you're serious about it and you're ready to scale, then I just start with a C Corp. So I think we we have a good sort of understanding of LLC LLCs versus C Corps. Uh, another area that I know founders are constantly trying to research and learn as much as they can about um, is the term sheet negotiation. I, I'd love to hear your sort of opinion on. What are some of the most important aspects of term sheets that founders really need to try and learn all they can about? And I know this is boiling the ocean type question because <laughs> these are you know long sort of complex legal documents, and obviously there's great resources out there. There's venture deals by by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. That book is considered to be, in many respects, a bible for the term sheet process. But it's written on behalf of sort of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, and not really as much, I think, from the lawyer's perspective. So I'm just curious for you, what do you think are some of the biggest aspects of term sheets that founders should be on the lookout for and should read up on? Yeah. So there are two types of terms in a term sheet. You have your control rights and your economic rights, and both extremely important. High level, and definitely these will vary depending on the stage. So I'm assuming there's going to be very early, kind of your pre-seed convertible note round or your, your first seed financing. Obviously, Valuation, extremely important. <laughs> how Know how much um, equity you're giving up. Obviously, the amount of capital, crucial. I think that goes without saying. So we'll always specify valuation. We'll specify the amount of capital to be um, invested by the lead investor and then the amount that can be invested by others. I would say some uh, like liquidation preferences, obviously, assuming you're going to have preferred stock. What happens when you sell the company or if you unwind? Is there a 1x liquidation preference, a 2x? Is it you know, participating preferred? Uh, I'd say those, those aren't, aren't that common anymore. Usually it's a 1x non-participating, maybe a 1.5 or 2x, depending on the situation. But understanding liquidation preference is important. Information rights is extremely important. So are you going to have someone on the board of directors and what will their rights be? They're usually protective provisions for an investor. So one might be you can't sell the company enter into either an asset purchase agreement or a stock purchase deal for your company you know, to, to exit and liquidate your holdings. Um, you have to have the investor sign off on that. And maybe you need the investor to sign off on the founder's salary if it's going to be over a certain amount. So there are a number of protective provisions where that requires the preferred director's vote even if they could be voted down two to one uh, again. So that's usually a pretty heavily negotiated term as well. The thing about term sheets as well is people have different approaches. I've seen some investors that just want to get the term sheet out the door and they'll put together a one page term sheet that's on valuation, amount invested, liquidation preference, so high level information rights, and then they let the lawyers deal with the rest of it. Uh, and really they just want to get the term sheet signed and move on, lock up that investment so to speak, even though it's not necessarily locked up. And there are others that'll send five page, you know, really drawn out term sheets that have specific legal, legal language, which I greatly appreciate because I can just copy, paste, drop it in the document. I'm good to go. And these are heavily negotiated. Uh, and I think, you know, it really just depends on the stage and the circumstances and really the preference of 
the founder and, and the investor as to what all they want to include. So yeah, I'll stop there before I go on for an hour about different terms and different methods to a term sheet. You mentioned they're heavily negotiated. And you know, of course, that's true from your perspective as the lawyer. Term sheets are not, you know, I know a legal binding document. A lot of the times they're used to sort of set the table on what the terms will be in the end, in the end legal documents. But where do you at Michael Best, where do lawyers, do you think, get involved really in the negotiations when it comes to term sheets? Because I know that venture capitalists can go back and forth with founders, especially founders who really understand the complexities, the complexities of term sheets. So when do you guys try to be the most helpful? And I guess, how does that sort of dynamic evolve where you have venture capitalists who are sending sort of their updated terms and entrepreneurs who want to respond? That whole thunderdome of negotiations, I've never personally been a part of, so I'm fascinated. Sure. No, I love this stuff. I mean, that's half of why I became a lawyer. Right? Just the, the negotiation process and closing a deal, love it. And again, this definitely varies. So sometimes founders will come to us after they have a term sheet signed. And you know, again, like I said, they maybe launch an LLC, get it started, they have some traction. They'll connect with an investor who will send them a term sheet and they'll sign it and they'll say, hey, Trey, I got this term sheet. Can you, you know, help me get the docs going? And that's not always great because sometimes they agree to terms that are not agreeable and like, well, maybe we should revisit a couple of these terms. So it's definitely not ideal. Definitely, I would recommend connecting with an attorney before you sign a term sheet. Other times, we'll, we will have connected long before they get a term sheet and we'll stay you know, in touch. Maybe we're working together and actually have that formal relationship and they'll connect with, with us at the start of their term sheet negotiation and we'll actually, you know, occasionally jump on the phone with the investor and their counsel, or we'll just help the advisor, the entrepreneur through the process. Maybe we never speak to the investor ourselves, but we just review the term sheet and give our thoughts on it. I'd say the latter is probably the most common where an entrepreneur will get a term sheet, send it over. We might make a couple marks, comments, suggestions, and then they'll go back. But it's, and also term negotiations aren't as intense. It's, we're not on suits screaming at each other in a boardroom. Usually it's just done through red lines. No, I'll have a term sheet. I'll send it to you. You'll mark it up, make some comments, send it back to me. I'll accept some of your comments. I'll decline some and send it back to you. So it's a lot of what negotiations look like. There obviously are, there are times where you get on the phone and you talk things through. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the process varies depending on the founder and, and the investor in the stage, but, uh, that's, that's typically what I've seen. And I know you graduated from law school, um, you know, a few years ago, but with the knowledge you have today and your sort of view of the early stage landscape over time, is it fair to say that term sheets have generally trended more founder friendly and you're just not seeing as many of the you know, onerous terms that you used to in the past. And is this a trend you've seen even continue since you've got, since you've started in law or have things sort of standardized today around what are best practices and, you know, the normal practices around term sheets? Yeah, I'd say things have definitely become more founder friendly. I think the venture environment is, is white hot right now. I mean, there's so much capital, so many deals. We're seeing valuations increase investors really fighting over deals, which is great for the founder. Uh, and so we've definitely seen more founder-friendly terms. Back when I was with NCT, I remember um, looking at a few old term sheets where there was like a maybe a 2x look pref on a deal, I mean, not even necessarily one that we'd invested in or been part of, but just around the ecosystem, maybe deals we've looked at. Uh, I saw a 3x liquidation preference one time and I like was shocked. <laughs> I didn't know if it's just because the Midwest was behind the coast. And granted, that was, what, four years ago, which I don't see that now. I think that was just a very unique situation dependent on on the specific facts. But have not seen, I don't even think I've seen a 2x liquidation preference since I've graduated. I've seen a couple 1.5x. And again, with a lot of these terms, too, it's investors trying to protect protect themselves from the downside. And that doesn't really do much. So I'm not investing in a company to get a 1.5x return or even a three, a two x return um, on my money, I want that to 10x to 50x. And an investor, kind of what I've seen is it can put a turn a founder off if you're trying to put out these tough terms, investor friendly terms. And these are some great deals, highly competitive deals. You don't want to risk a great investment opportunity 
because you try to protect yourself from the downside to return get a 1.5x like that's not at all what you want you want to go big they've definitely gotten more founder friendly we've seen investors fighting over a lot of great deals just a lot of great companies out there a lot of capital that needs allocated i think that we just saw a note that there were more companies started in 2020 than any previous year i don't know that might not be accurate <laughs> you can fact check me on that one let me know if i'm wrong but more companies being started, more capital to allocate, and things are moving quickly. And and yeah, so we're definitely, to answer your question, definitely trending more founder friendly. And there are definitely market rates at this point that you know we don't see too crazy of a term sheet come through, but definitely founder friendly right now. Yeah. And it's a great point you make too, that protection of the downside, you're really getting held up there. I, I've always just I've always been puzzled by that a little bit because at the end of the day, a lot of the times you're looking for an investment that's going to return two x three x your fund, ten x your fund. That's mm-hmm. the whole point of these early stage risks and these early stage bets. And I come from a background of high yield debt, and that was all about protecting. That was about covenants, insuring a little companies. bit different, <laughs> little slightly bit different, and the risk asymmetry was definitely different. But no, I think it's. It's a fascinating, you know, almost sociological study to see what are the most important terms over time and how the venture landscape has changed and how much capital there is and how that's fighting over the best deals, which means that founders are getting better and better terms on those deals, which is probably a great thing in the long run. At least that's sort of, that's my opinion. But I'm curious for Michael Best, and you touched on this in the beginning, once a company has graduated that early stage and moving on to growth stage and moving on to potentially maybe one day going public, there's probably, is there a sense they need to bring on more legal help at the growth stage as they're getting bigger and bigger? Or can they stay with one sort of law firm through the duration of their company life cycle? Yeah, so you can definitely stay with one law firm, um, assuming it's a full service, probably a larger firm. And so previously I was with the boutique at GLG and you know, we weren't going to do file your patent for you. I do a bunch of privacy work. You know, we mainly were a deal for, like, we would work on financings and some, do some M&A activity and some general, general corporate as well. But we weren't going to take a, you know, a company after their hundred million dollar series E fundraise and do all of their employee. Like that's, that's obviously not feasible, but with a larger law firm like Michael Best, uh, we absolutely do help with companies throughout the entire life cycle. So I mentioned Venture Best, pretty you know small, nimble team uh, with strong backgrounds in venture and, and startups generally. But we do have the larger, broader firm where we have a really strong IP group to help with intellectual property. We have an employment and labor group to help with bring on a number of employees and executive compensation. There's securities teams as you um, look at different uh, and alternative financing opportunities. And so huge plug for Michael Best <laughs> in this part, but we're a, we're a full service law firm that does a lot of that. And I'd say probably any large law firm can do that as well. And if you don't want the amazing opportunity to work with yours truly, you could probably find just about any, any larger law firm really could probably do just about all that for you. But yeah, I mean, full service, I, d- I definitely recommend a, a full service law firm once you get to the later stage. I mean, a boutique, I really, really enjoyed working at the boutique. Um, I think it's really helpful, can usually be really cost effective. But at the same time, once you graduate, like you were saying, to more of the growth stage, then you're going to need some help. And that doesn't mean jumping around different law firms. It could, um, if you want, if you prefer. But you know, usually a, a larger full service firm could can handle just about everything for you. The Midwest, both of us are clearly very bullish on the Midwest ecosystem. But my guess is that traditionally, there were probably not as many venture capital or startup focused law firms here in Chicago, here in the Midwest. West is that is that the case? Has that sort of grown with the ecosystem over time? Yeah, I'd say so. You know, we've I'd say there a lot of the firms are here in Chicago. I mean, you look at bigger markets like Chicago, Cleveland has quite a few. Detroit, there are larger firms that do have emerging company, you know, venture practice groups. I think those specific practice groups have just um, developed much more over the last few years as, we, as we've seen more capital and more activity. But yeah, I mean, I'd say the you know maybe more boutiques popping up. The larger firms have always been here. They've always been doing corporate M and A work. You know, really venture is just have a subcategory under corporate M and A. The venture best group, like I said, we've really branded and you know we've we've actually been around. One thing again, I liked about this group is 
they launched the Venture Best Group years ago, I want to say at least early 2000s, if not late 90s. And then, you know, with the home office headquartered in Milwaukee. But we, we've definitely seen more practice groups develop over time. And when I started, I was trying to reach out to venture lawyers when I was going to leave. So that was what, 2016? Did not know who to reach out to. It wasn't openly obvious. You'd have a ton of people that would list venture and startups on their bios, but they're mainly doing larger M&A deals, larger corporate. And so by extension, they would work with startups. But I, I think we've definitely seen some growth in the venture-specific practice groups throughout the Midwest, just as, as we've seen the ecosystem grow a ton in the last few years. I believe that you also, venture capitalists need lawyers well, need lawyers <laughs> as well. Something that I've encountered personally, something that I I think as the U.S. market has become competitive, there are so many sort of deals, there's so much capital rushing towards the best founders here, and COVID kind of democratized capital. So across the board, across North America, you know, it's just very competitive. So I think you're seeing more and more venture capital firms look to Europe potentially to make investments, to make deals. What, why are those deals sometimes considered you know, too complicated or complex or may just not be advisable? These are the type of things that, that I get curious about is what are some of the challenges in investing overseas as a venture capital firm? Sure. And so just to give you some high level insight into how complex these can get, I probably couldn't sit here and give you a great thorough answer because there's so many different areas of law that come into play and it can just be really complex. And so you have securities issues, you know, where the securities registered and where is the person investing, domiciled or living. You have tax complications. You know, are you generating income in say Germany if you invest there and how does that flow through back to the US? Their Sosifius has been kind of a big topic as of late. And actually, you know, when I was did some writing on a medium account just to learn about new topics. After I'd visited the NVCA group in DC, they were talking about CFIUS and international investments. And so I tried to write about CFIUS since the committee on foreign investment in the U S um, and so this kind of reverse what you were asking. It's if you are in say Europe and you want to invest in the U S they have this entire committee. There are certain registrations you have to make or, or filings you have to make. And it's essentially kind of protecting the IP. And so there's an intellectual property and a privacy pl um, play here as well. And so if we're looking at foreign investors investing in the US, it almost seems like crazy a conspiracy theory like to say this, but it's essentially not wanting foreign governments that may be adverse to the US to have access to our new technology. Like we might not want another foreign government to have access to, oh, a perfect example, this TikTok. People were saying that TikTok is collecting all this information on your phone and they're just gathering all this information, all these U.S. citizens, and what are they doing with it? And are they complying with our laws? We don't know. And there's just a huge privacy piece to it. And so we're looking at do foreign investors have access to technology that's here that are, that's being used by um, U.S. citizens? And are they taking that data and information technology and what are they doing with it? So looking at securities issues, how you're registering those the tax implications, how do you pay tax on your the income you make from your investment, um, looking at these foreign investor issues as well. It's all, all over the board. And like I said, I mean, I could probably spend the next couple of years really diving into this. And I mean, I would probably have to focus solely on this issue to really feel confident talking about it and advising clients on this. Usually I connect with someone else <laughs> when these issues come up that has much more expertise than I do. But there are just so many issues at play that Essentially, what you need to know as an entrepreneur is that the standard NVCA docs have foreign investor representations to where you just have the investor say, I am not a foreign investor, and you don't worry about it from there. If they are a foreign investor, then you might have to make certain filings and, again, deal with all these other issues. So it's something that's addressed in all the, the NVCA um, standard documents. It's definitely a big topic. There are specific practice groups that focus on these issues, and they can get pretty complex pretty quick. I, I think that should just be the uh, the uh, the the category the summary of this episode on uh, Spotify. <laughs> it can get pretty complex pretty quick. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I will say I'm proud of myself. I don't think I've said the phrase "it depends," which is like the most stereotypical lawyer thing you could say. Which, yep, candidly, it's true. It depends on the facts, but it just depends. You know, it depends on a lot of things, and and I think that this is one of those scenarios.
I think that's that is so true. I think every single profession has its catchphrases that people hate to hear. <laughs> like lawyers, it's it depends. Economists, there's this great, you know, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, and then on the other hand, and on the other hand. I think yeah, uh, I I think I saw it's like if you ask five economists the same question, you'll get five different answers, but six different answers if one of them went to like Harvard or some like I don't know, really well-known institute. I don't remember what the exact saying is, but yeah, well, definitely definitely kudos, have those in the, in the legal field. <laughs> kudos to you for avoiding that. I, this has been a blast, and I know people are going to take away so much from this episode. One thing I have to ask you about, though, Justin Fields, you're a Buckeye guy, so that Let's must go. be day. So I, you know, I... Exactly how excited should people be? I think everybody, you know, everybody watched him in college, but as a Buckeye, how excited should Bears fans be heading into 2021? I mean, this this is going to be a big year. Um, Justin Fields, uh, obviously amazing quarterback. I was almost disappointed to see him drop a little bit. I think he was treated a little unfairly in, uh, in the draft, but being in Chicago, I'm so thankful he landed here. I'm definitely going to grab a jersey and go to a couple games this year. Um, going to be a big year for the Bears. Um, well, I, I'm excited for Justin Fields. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna crush it. So it's, I think he's what uh, the Bears have been needing these last few years. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I love though that he fell because that's just extra motivation. I mean, that's that. Oh, exactly. You know, that's that's exactly the type of chip on the shoulder that we want. Um, <laughs> Trey, this has been amazing. I really appreciate you hopping on Chicago Capital. I think you know one of the last questions: if there are any great resources any great thought leaders at sort of the nexus of venture capital and and you know law any great people you follow newsletters podcasts anything you could recommend to the audience who wants to learn a little bit more about some of the topics we covered today yeah absolutely well i have to give a plug to my boss galen find him on twitter um he's uh he's definitely uh someone i look up to a lot in the venture space and it's pretty active one great resource you guys should check out i mean on the we actually have our own domain for the venture best group and we have uh, blog posts coming out every week, constantly writing about different topics. Now, I'm trying to do some more writing as well, just hopefully through through our, our platform and also maybe just through Medium and some personal outlets as well, uh, looking for topics. If there's anything people are interested in hearing about, please let us know. I'm happy to, to get some of the attorneys in the Venture Best group to write about them as well. We want to make sure we have some good content that people care about. So feel free to, to send over some of your questions. Again, no attorney-client relationship established until that engagement letter, but we're, we're happy to write about some topics for you, you know, just to, just to help you guys out as a friend. Trey, that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you back again, and we can dive into, I'm sure, a million other questions that will come up in my head between now and then. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, Matt. It was great to be here. Thanks. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.